Hi, and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our desire is to see people all around the world burn for one name, Jesus. We pray that you experience the love and power of Him through this journey. Thank you for joining us, and may burning witnesses arise. I'm going to ask you to open up to John chapter 11. I have several things in my heart this morning to share with you. Um, As we were readying ourselves to come, um, and by that I don't just mean packing bags and and things of that nature, although that's a part of it, Um, but I mean even in intentional time and in praying and and fasting and really leaning on the Lord and and trying to seek the voice of God. You know, Lord, what is it that you would have us to say? And uh, we really look forward to in a great way every opportunity that we have to be with you. Um, especially this weekend, recognizing seven years to the day and how all of this uh, began. And when I say all of this, uh, I mean the, the wonderful relationship and the journey that God has had us on together. Uh, we don't take it for granted, and we know that in a supernatural way, the Lord began something out of his own desire uh, because he saw fit for us to be together even when we didn't know that this is what we needed. Um, He knows best, and he knows what he's doing, and that's why we can trust him. Um, But seven years to the day, my my wife would have really wanted to be here. She's at home, obviously, with our five children, probably watching um, our youngest, of which is now seven months old. We will bring him uh, at one point, Uh, but until my two-year-old is going to wear a mask on an airplane, that is not going to be possible. Um, Isaiah is a two-year-old tornado, and he's just not going to do it. And it's not going to be fun for us, and it ain't going to be fun for anybody else on the plane. And I don't want to be banned from Delta, so we have not yet attempted that. Uh, But we will all come soon, um, because they really want to be here. Um, My kids love the Blondo boys, and now Hadassah, who is coming. Uh, amazing, and they're so happy for you guys. Um, but in readying our hearts, there was a, there was a great anticipation um, because we recognized that it wasn't a one and done. We realized that it wasn't just some conference invite that was an assignment and you come and deliver, you come and impart, uh, you come and do what God asked you to do, but there's an ever-increasing, ongoing story that God is writing to the glory of his own name. Um, And after seven years, you've built enough history. Um, After seven years, there's enough credibility in the story um, to recognize what God is doing. It it has to be real, otherwise it could not possibly have lasted as long as it did. Right? This isn't like the one dinner invite that you give somebody as a token thing, right? Because they're new to the relational circles and you're just trying to make them feel involved. Right? No, that's not what I'm... After seven years... Um, there's a certain rhythm, there's a certain life source that you begin to recognize, and God, by his own grace, has been forming something that we are incredibly appreciative of. Um, There's no church in all the world that stands with us the way that we know you stand with us, and there's no church in all of the world that we feel family with the way that we feel family with you. Um, And I know that I say that often, but I say it because we really mean it. Um, And it's been a joy from day one since my wife and I arrived in New York City. Uh, Our team has more than tripled since the first time that we've met you. 
which is now multiple full-time people, multiple part-time people, multiple contracted folks. Um, our team is growing, and we feel that throughout our whole team, our hearts are growing um, with affection for this family here in New York City. And we are grateful for you guys. Um, we thank God for the way that you pray for us. We thank God for the way that you reach out to us through a variety of ways, whether that be emails or social media or text messages. Um, we thank God for the way that you financially stand with us and all of those ways that you have chosen because it takes a yes before the Lord. All of the ways that you have chosen to partner with us and the millions and millions of lives around the world that have been impacted for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom because of your yes. Um, we will together dance around the throne of Jesus one day. And we will meet people that we have never met face to face on this side of life that will be grateful for the yes that we gave to the Lord and how it impacted their lives and brought them into eternity. Um, thank you. Thank you for who you are. Um, thank you for your yes to the Lord. Thank you for your yes, and even as Paul said to the Corinthians, the opening up of your hearts to us and our team. Uh, we love you guys. Um, you guys know, John and Rainy Dawn, we love you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, if it's all right with you, I have some things in my heart this morning from John chapter 11. Um, I may say this, but it might not actually happen I've tried to say it multiple times before. Um, my goal this morning isn't to preach to you, but it's to share some things from a more personal place in my own journey and things that I see whenever we look at this passage together in John chapter 11 that have really been a strength to me in the real places, in the trenches of life, as I have for decades now tried to love Jesus in a real way, as I have for decades now tried to give him the yes that he has asked me for, in moments when he's challenged me by faith to believe for things that were just utterly impossible, in moments when the pain and the carnage and the seeming devastation of life was so overwhelming for me that it was hard for me to find him, and it was difficult for me to find out what he was doing because I couldn't yet, based out of the history that I had had with him, I, I, didn't, I didn't have that yet. And so everything seemed new and there were times where, where disappointment tried to overcome my heart because the, the circumstantial evidence that was speaking to me was greater than the way that he had seemed to reveal himself to me because I just didn't have the time invested yet in order to overcome certain things that life or the enemy or my own fears and doubts and insecurities tried to present to me and to tell me that they were more real to me than his love for me. And looking at John chapter 11, if you're familiar with with the chapter, then you understand it's, it's the death of Lazarus. It's his sisters that are that they're totally beside themselves. It's a crowd of people that are rallying around seeking to bring comfort. Um, it's, it's Jesus who catches word. He's in the next town over. And, and it's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of things happening. Right? And you realize as well as I do that there can be one circumstance, but there can be a million different things 
that are all happening at the same time, seeming to orbit around and interconnect in different ways due to one circumstance. And one circumstance is producing a variety of effects in a lot of people that are all involved in different ways. And this is what we find here. We find that Lazarus is dead. And this is real. It's not fake. It's not pretend. It isn't some dream that you get to wake up from. Lazarus has died. And maybe you found out, maybe you haven't yet, that life is real. And at times life is hard. At times life is difficult and we end up in broken places. We end up with our hopes shattered. We end up in disappointment. We end up walking through trials that are meant to bring us into a deeper experiential knowledge of God. Let me just encourage you, all of our discipleship efforts should be unto the knowledge of God. Everything that we do, it's not empty forms of religiosity. It's not just hoops and hoopla. This isn't some kind of circus where we just learn new activities and tricks and little Christian mechanics so that we can be impressive or build resumes for those that are watching. I, I run into people all over the place that have been in church for extended amounts of time, that are doing all of the Christian stuff, but all of the Christian stuff has not actually been pointed at them deepening in their knowledge of God. And they do all the stuff, but they don't really know the Lord. They've perfected the performance, but on the inside, their heart doesn't feel tied to him. Their lives haven't been anchored in a real relationship. They don't actually know him. They know the songs. They sing about him, but they don't know how to sing to him. They've never been drawn face to face. They don't touch him. They don't deepen in their understanding of him in the secret place. The trials of life overwhelm them and expose them because what's actually living and supposed to be vibrant on the inside is not growing up within them into the knowledge of who God is. And we find ourselves on the outside with a manufactured, self-made, performance-oriented reality where we know what we're supposed to do, but everything that we're supposed to do isn't actually bringing us into a relationship that has enough substance to conquer the circumstantial evidence of life whenever life wants to suppose to me or present to me that it is greater than who God has said he is to me. And so when life comes, and when life confronts us, our knowledge of God is confronted through the confrontations of life. And this is what we must know. And it's why it's so important that our discipleship is unto the deepening of the knowledge of God. We pray because we want to know him. Not because we want to check some box that says I sat in a corner for 15 minutes. Let me tell you, you can sit in a corner for 15 minutes and not deepen in the knowledge of God. You don't want to check a box, well, I read three scriptures and a psalm and a proverb, so I hit the mark for today. You can understand the letter, right? You diligently search the scriptures, learning them, but not recognizing that even the scriptures are supposed to lead you to me, is what Jesus told the Pharisees. You know the letter, but do you know the man who embodies the letter? Do you know the incarnate one? Do you know the God who stands in the midst of us draws near to us because he has become one of us? All of our discipleship, 
We don't worship so that we can feel better. Well, I've had a bad week. I can't wait to get in there and worship. Worship's not about you. It's about him. Worship isn't some self-help medication. It's not some antioxidant that we dose ourselves with whenever we've got a bad attitude. Worship is about a king who is enthroned. It's about a worthy one to break the seal and open the, or the scrolls. It's about the lion from the tribe of Judah, the descendant of David, the one who has gone into the depths, and so he's been enthroned in the heights. Worship is about a bridegroom king, a man who is alive from the dead. It's not about us. And we can easily worship because of us. And in certain cases, worship our experience of worship more than we actually worship Jesus. Well, they didn't sing my songs today, so worship was terrible. Worship ain't about you, and it ain't about the experience that you prefer. It's about Jesus. And so all of our discipleship efforts have to be unto. See, here I go. They have to be unto a deepening in the knowledge of God. And this is what you see that gets confronted in John chapter 11. You find two sisters that know the same man, but yet they relate to him in radically different ways. Because again, Lazarus is dead. Have you ever gone through a scenario where it was difficult to trust God's leadership? Where you knew him enough to know that he was up to something but based off of the something that you were going through, you had no idea what he was actually going to use it for. You know that he's good. You know that he loves you. You know that his intentions are always good towards you. And you can't ever come off of that. That's discipleship 101. You can't ever come off of that. You can't ever allow life to rob you of the belief that he's good. And he's not just good momentarily, but he's good at all times. And everything that he does is coming from a place of his intentions being good towards us, even if what we're going through does not feel good. Life cannot feel good, and I can still be good because I know that God is good. I don't have to have everything feel good, look good, sound good in order to be good because my being good is not based off of life giving me something that is good. Me being good is founded upon and anchored in a belief that he is good. And if he is good and good at all times, then I can be and should be good at all times. Well, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm good. Well, bro, you just told me everything that you're going through, and none of that sounds good. Well, you didn't ask me if what I was going through was good. You asked me how I was. I'm good. And I can be good even if what I'm going through is not good. And these sisters are going through a scenario where their brother has died. And it's real. Again, it's not a pinch me so I can wake up. It's not some vision and prayer that they're going to get to lift from in a moment. It's actually happening. And so it is for most of us. Life really happens. And at times it happens fast and at times it happens hard. Life is aggressive at times. And their whole world is shaking because one that they love has now passed away. And they call for Jesus. And the hardships of life, when our heart is crying out, we look for him. In the troubling moments, when the waves are raging and the storm seems to be pouring in on us from every side, 
And the ache in our hearts reaches for him, longs for him. We begin to call upon the name of the Lord. Like Hannah did in her moment of trial and tragedy, when what she wanted from God was so overwhelming that tears poured out of her face and her prayer was lifted to God, but it came forth and it didn't even have real words attached to it and no one heard her voice. Sometimes what's happening on the inside of us is so deep and it penetrates and it pierces down deep within our soul to a place that's so real on the inside where we connect with God in an interior way that words don't seem to be able to communicate. Human articulation just doesn't get the job done. And from the inside, she's groaning, she's longing. And her prayer before God is successful, but her prayer before God goes without actual words being attached to it. Man, have you ever had a season of your life where you were hurting, but you were searching? You've been pierced by life, but you were aching for God in the midst of it. Where you knew what life was saying, but you knew what God was saying. And then there was a tug of war on the inside. There was a rivaling of sorts that was happening deep down within. This is where the sisters are because life is actually happening. Life is actually happening. But at least they do the right thing. They call out to Jesus. You see, because I've learned time and time and time again that it is much easier to try and do life your own way. It's a whole lot easier to try to form life your own way. It's a whole lot easier through a desire for independence to not continue to try to believe God. To not continue to try and move forward in faith and dependence and trust. It's a whole lot easier to trust me than it is to trust Jesus. I'll get through this. I'll make a way. But let me just tell you, the self-made life is not as rewarding. (laughs) The self-made life is not as rewarding as the walk of faith, as the journeying of trusting in God, as the continued opportunity to step away from my belief in me and to continue again and again and again to lay down my anchor in a trust in God. And they call out to Jesus. And it says that he comes, but he waits. He waits two more days after they call him. And it says that he waits because he loves them. I don't know if you've ever had a moment where God didn't necessarily do what you wanted him to in the time frame that it would have been super convenient if he did it when I wanted him to do it and not necessarily when he knew he was going to do it because the moment that he thought was best for him to do it wasn't aligning well with the moment that I thought was best for him to do it and so he allowed the tension he allowed the tension to build even though he knew what he was going to do all along In the midst of the tension, I really didn't know what he was going to do 
all along and I'm the one that's having to go through life in the trenches and I'm the one that's having to bear up under the tension and I'm the one that's having to deal with all of the accusation of the enemy from within my own heart as to who God is and I'm the one that's having to deal with all of the opinions of those that are rallying around me trying to convince me of what it is that God might be wanting to do in the situation that's pertaining to me and here I am in the crucible of real life seeming to be slapped around and tossed to and fro. And maybe this is just my life. Maybe, maybe it's not any of your lives. But I've realized that in trusting the Lord, there have been many occasions where it has led me into impossible situations that I did not like. Where trusting Jesus brought me up against a wall of opposition a moment of impossibility, circumstantial evidence that put me in a crucible that absolutely confronted and then destroyed all of my own fleshly ways of being able to get through things that I've gone through. I have been exposed because there's only been one of two options. Either I'm going to trust him and lean forward into what seems like the darkness and the mystery of what is unknown. And it's unknown because I don't have a way to naturally satisfy what it is that I'm going through. I have no shot if he does not come through for me. There is nothing that I have in my bag of tricks that is going to get me through what it is that obedience to Jesus has brought me up against. There's nothing that I have. There's no leverage in my own strength that I can manipulate or fashion or wield in order to, at least for appearance sake, seem to get through well what it is that he has spoken to me and it has brought me up against. But here we are. And I think at times we, we, remue, we remove the, the humanity that the scriptures beautifully reveal to us. I think at times we want to pretend like the stories that we're reading don't involve real people. And so we take how real people would act out of the stories so that we can, at least for our own imagination, create a concept that is distant from us so that we're not accountable to the same types of moves that people in the stories made. Because God really challenges people. He really wants to walk with us. He really wants to bring us into impossible scenarios so that in the face of what looks like on our side, adversity, uncertainty, and mystery, he can be enthroned upon the praises of his people so that impossibility is no longer God in our life, but he is. You see, because until God reveals himself as the one that conquers our greatest fears. Our fears become worship to impossibility. Until God walks us through the valley of the shadow of the death, the, the valley of the shadow of death, and we learn that we don't have to be afraid because he is with us. Our anxiety, our doubt, our fear creates an altar where we worship impossibility because we do not yet know through the deepening of the experiential side of the knowledge of God that he is the one in the midst of us that is faithful to walk with us. 
We just don't know. And so we have things that we say that at times aren't real in our lives because we don't know them to be real. You praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me, is what he told them. Can you imagine Moses, right? I've, I've been pondering lately and, and prayerfully considering the person of Moses. Can you imagine Moses when he's all by himself in the desert and he gets a word from God? Man, this is about to be amazing. Man, God's going to use me. It's going to be incredible. Man, the bush was on fire. Man, I had to take my shoes off because it was holy ground. I couldn't stand in my jays in the presence of Jesus. It's going to be overwhelming. But now you actually have to walk that out. Right? Because it's cool. You get a word from God at the altar. Right? Like service was super hype and all of the emotions and the adrenaline and the endorphins were going and, and we were overwhelmed and whoo, either God spoke to me or I got that prophetic word through the person that laid hands on me and everything is so good. But now I have to go back to real life. And now I have to begin to walk out what it is that I know God said. And there are going to be all types of unique tensions that continually want to test what it is that you know God has said to you. But it is in the trenches and the testing in real life of what it is that God has revealed to you where we have the continued opportunity to either enthrone him upon our praises in the face of impossibility to say that you are the overcomer. You are the one that has conquered. You are the one that has been enthroned and not just enthroned in an abstract way, but enthroned in real time, in real life, in my heart because now I know you against all of what the evidence of my life wanted to say about you and Moses actually has to walk it out right and the plagues are super cool and he gets to deliver the word of the Lord to Pharaoh and there seems to be this this journeying because of what God has said to them but it brings him to a moment that I know we're all really familiar with and they've been delivered from Egypt and they walk out and now they have the wall of water in front of them And obedience brought them to the wall of water. Has obedience ever brought you to what looked like a wall of resistance rather than always seeming to preserve you from the resistance? Has obedience ever put you up against resistance? Has obedience ever put you into an impossible situation? Has obedience ever brought you to a moment where you began to doubt what it is that God had said to you? Well, no, Mike, never, because I never doubt. Right? Because I'm superhuman and I'm not like anybody else. And the scriptures don't reveal humanity to me. They create exemptions from real people having to walk with a real God and actually go through the real things that happen on the inside of us as we're really trying to do that. Anybody who's told you that feelings of fear and doubts and all of these things, that it's immature to feel these things, is obviously not really walking with God the way that some of us are. Because at times I'm afraid. 
And at times, I feel super insecure. And at times, I begin to enter into conversations where I'm doubting because of the things that I'm facing. Now, what I'm also not saying is that these things are supposed to win. But anybody who tells you that we're exempt from these things trying to influence us is lying. They're lying because that's not actually the way that it goes. Because I don't believe, I refuse to believe that Moses stood up against the wall of water and was like, yep, this is exactly the way that I drew it up. Praise God, he's about to do it. No, I don't think it was like that at all. As a matter of fact, I think that he was looking at the water and he was looking back at Pharaoh's army and he was looking at all of the people that he was trying to lead. All of the people that God had used him to convince that he had said something. Well, Moses, what's it going to look like when you guys just end up getting captured and taken back to Egypt? How embarrassed are you going to be when you told everybody that God was with you? How humiliating is it going to be, man, when God doesn't do what you thought he was going to do? Moses, look at this. It would have been a lot easier just to stay where you were. Because that's the truth. It's a lot easier to stay the same. You know it. It's hard trying to believe. It's hard trying to see something that is not yet, that looks and sounds impossible, but yet to lean forward into God and to trust him to do something that at times many others are not willing to believe that he's actually able to do. It's hard, and it's exhausting, and it wears on you, and it breaks you. It, it, it breaks you, and that's what it's meant to do. And it wears on you, and it's exhausting, because it requires a strength that you're not able to muster up from within yourself. Because it's not attached to the self-made life. It's attached to a quality and a power of life that only God himself is able to give you. It's attached to something that if God doesn't actually do it on the inside of you, then it's not really sustainable. And that's why every day that you're believing in faith, it requires you to look at him and not to keep looking at you. Because you don't actually have what it takes to do what it is that he has said. And Moses is now looking at the waters. And he's got, I'm sure, the voice of his own accusations within him. Man, you've messed it up. Well, you gave it your best shot. Well, at least you brought them this far. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, man, things began well? But, well, but it, I guess it's just not going to look like God's going to see it all the way through like he said he would. We gave it a good shot. We're going down swinging, if anything. Where does that come from? What is it within us that just always has trouble believing God. What, what is the difficulty, what is the tension on the inside that always wants to retreat into familiarity? It's so much easier just to stay the way that we are because trusting him is hard. I, I know trusting him is hard. It's so much easier just to stay the way that we are because at least we're familiar 
with where we are. We're familiar with our challenges. We're familiar with these pains. We're familiar with all of the dysfunction. We're familiar with all of these limitations. But to venture out, to move forward, to take that step, to actually believe that he is God and he's with me and he's going to see me through according to what he's revealed to me. I can imagine Moses standing there, looking on the faces of those that he's trying to lead because they didn't hear it the way that he heard it. (laughs) And I can just imagine Moses standing there. God, what are you about to do? What are you doing? I have no idea how you're actually going to fulfill what it is that you said to me. Have you ever been there? Come on, this is real life with God. These are the trenches with Jesus. When nobody else is around, it's you and God all alone in what looks like a broken place in a dark room. We call it the secret place. Get away from everybody else. Go into your room. Close that door and connect with your father. And with what your father sees in secret, he will then reward you openly. Um, This is real life with God. And I can imagine the humanity of Moses as he is so challenged in that moment. Um, Because if I'm going to be honest, I've been challenged more times than I would like to say I have. And what is it about us that always wants to prop up this image as if we're doing really well all the time? Like I've got it all together. I don't. But I know he does. and, And I'm actually not trying to pretend that I've got it all together. I'm okay with communicating the tension. Right? And some people are not okay with communicating the tension because our culture, at least, has communicated that the experience of the tension is immaturity. Right? It's not immaturity to talk about the tension. It's immaturity to allow the tension to win at the end of the conversation. Right? Jesus is communicating the tension. I know that there is another way. I know that if I asked you for this cup to pass, that I actually have the power to produce another way that seems to get this done. And he's on his face and he's praying and he's bleeding out of his face, which is a medical condition. And he's under so much duress. He's under so much tension that he's sweating drops of blood out of his face. That doesn't sound like someone who's handling the process in a way that's not affecting them. It's affecting him. It's affecting him. And he's looking for others to pray with him while it's actually affecting him because he knows what his father wants to do. And the crucible is him having to pray his way into a place of saying yes to what he knows is the way his father wants because there are other ways that he could want. And that's where we all are. There are obviously all types of ways that we could live our life. But our life doesn't belong to us anymore. And it's what creates the tension. I don't get to do what I want. I I don't get to do what I want. I don't get to just set my life up any way that I want. My life doesn't belong to me. I belong to the king. And now he rules and he reigns and I'm one of his subjects. And what matters to him matters to me. And his 
voice in my life is now what creates the sense of governance and my joy is to delight in his will and all I'm living for is his smile over the place of my obedience and what that means is I just don't get to do life the way that I want I'm now bound to doing life the way that he wants and at times it's going to create tension in my life because it's a lot easier to do what I want because I tend to put myself in very safe scenarios I tend to manufacture situations in my life that have very probable outcomes. I'm not looking for tough times. I'm not seeking out impossible situations where if God doesn't actually come through for me, then I'm going to be embarrassed and exposed to everyone standing around me. This isn't usually the way that I'm trying to set my life up. And there stands Moses with a word from God. Believing that the wall of resistance is going to come down. You see, the only reason that the wall of water looks like an impossibility is because Moses doesn't yet know how God is going to do it. (laughs) The wall is only a perceived impossibility because Moses doesn't yet know God as the one that's able to part the waters. That's the only reason that it looks impossible. That's the only reason that it sounds impossible. That's the only reason that the traction of fear and doubt and anxiety is actually able to find a place in our hearts is because Moses hasn't seen God do it that way yet. And so it only looks impossible to Moses from this side because Moses doesn't know what God has up his sleeve. He knows he's going to do something, but he's never seen him do that thing yet. And so it looks impossible. And these sisters call for Jesus. And Jesus waits, and he allows the tension to build. What a pal. What a friend. (laughs) Rather than running in and rescuing me when I want him to, Rather than coming as quickly as he could, he waits. Rather than lifting and alleviating my burden, all of the conversation that he knows is raging on the inside of me. He allows it to form. He allows it to build. And he postpones his day of visitation. What a pal. (laughs) Yes. Hallelujah. He allows it to build. Seeming to the way that he did when they were on the boat and they accused him of not caring. And they wake him up, you remember? Why don't you care about us? Can't you see that the storm is raging? He's like, I could deal with that storm in a moment. Peace be still. It's the storm that's raging on the inside of you that's bringing you to the place where you're accusing me that I have a hard time dealing with. I can't fix that storm in a moment, but that's the storm that really matters to me. And they call for him and he waits because there's something about the waiting that brings to the surface of our life who we really are. Bless God. There's something about the waiting that allows all of the accusations in our heart to begin to form. Accusations about ourselves, accusations about others, accusations about God himself. Man, I I, I sit and I think to myself sometimes, God is so amazing. He is able 
to love me in a way that is faithful and long-suffering, even in the midst of all of my accusations about him at times. He just keeps coming. Right? He's so not like us. You get falsely accused one time in a relationship, how often are you inviting that person over for dinner again? Right? Like, you get falsely accused, and I'm not talking about, like, in a private way. I'm talking about, like, in a way that it goes public. Right? And don't, Lord have mercy, don't let somebody post about you. How often are you inviting them over? But God, with more than 7 billion people on the face of the planet, is able to love in a faithful, long-suffering way, even against the tidal wave of opinion and accusations that he knows is not in alignment with who he actually is, and he just keeps on coming. And so Jesus waits a few days because he wants the conversation to get ripe. Right? He wants it to get ripe. Now, I want to know where you're really at. And so I'm going to wait until this thing builds and builds and builds. And then right when it climaxes, I'm going to step in. Because that's when you're going to give me what I really want. You're going to give me the real you. <laughs> because until we define reality, we can't actually move forward. Right? I know we live in a, in a filtered generation. But God doesn't work with your filters Right? He doesn't work with Photoshop and all the ways that we can you know, adjust images according to what we think other people like. He's not dealing with a filtered generation. He's not catering to all of the false images that we prop up. He wants to know who we really are, where we really are, because he wants to meet us right in the middle of who we think he is in relationship to who we are, and it's in that place that he longs to be enthroned. But until we actually reveal or that place gets exposed, we don't have have a way to actually move forward. And some of us have perfected all of the externals, but yet it's, it's the knowledge of God on the inside that's still lacking. We've perfected our attendance, our giving. We've perfected our scripture memorization. But these things are not actually helping to form a deep and real relationship that is actually helping us to overcome the tidal wave of life and the storms of circumstantial evidence where every little thing that happens to us, rather than it producing worship, causes an eruption of accusation. And Jesus comes to Bethany because it's where real life is happening. And he wants to be in the midst of real life with us. He wants to do real life with us. He wants you to know him in real life. He wants to walk with you in real life. He wants to totally shatter the accusation of the enemy against his nature, his character in real life. And in order for him to walk in real life with the real you, you have to go through things that are going to provide him the opportunity to really reveal himself to you and also to deal with what is erupting out of you. And when he arrives at Bethany, it says Martha comes running out. Again, in John 11, she comes running out. And at times, this is me. 
If you had been here, this wouldn't have happened to me. If you had been present the way that I wanted you to, I wouldn't have had to go through this. Right? If you loved me the way that you say you did, then that love could have kept me from this pain. It could have shielded me from this destruction. But no, you were off doing your own thing. Right? You were somewhere else. There were others who were more important to have your attention. Right? Martha comes out, and she seems to come really subtle, but yet also really strong. If you were here, I know that you know, God would have given you anything that you asked him for, but you weren't here. And Jesus says, your brother will rise. And she's like, yeah, 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 I know. Because God's going to raise everybody on the, on the last day. Right at the end of the age, we know God's going to raise everybody. Right? And this is where our knowledge of the text hasn't actually brought us into an intimate relationship with the person. <laughs> she knows the right scriptures to quote, but yet it's not helping to produce worship in her life. The scriptures that she's quoting is just fueling her frustration and her accusation against who she wanted God to be. She hasn't yet understood that he's a real person that really stands in real life with her. And she says, yeah, I get it, right? Don't try to quote scriptures to me. Like, yeah, I get it. Right? Like, don't just throw scripture verses on my problems. My brother's really dead. And if you'd have been here, you could have done something about it. Right? Like, anybody ever have friends like this? Like Job's friends? Right? Like, they berate him and they belittle him with scripture verses? <laughs> right? Okay, only me? All right, cool, I get it. I remember I broke my back last year. Everybody remembers that. Um, well, at least everybody that knows. Uh, and I remember somebody on the phone was like, don't claim that, brother. Don't, don't claim what? He's a healer. Don't say that. Don't claim a broken, like, moron, my back is broke. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, life is real. Like, are you, What? Or like you're overwhelmed with like 103 fever and you got the person on the phone that's like, well, you just don't speak in tongues enough, brother. What? Right? We've all got Job's friends. I remember last time I was here and I called Job's friends a bunch of bozos. But even Job reveals the tragedy and the challenge of trying to trust God and his leadership in real time. Which is why it's not dated. Because they believe it's universal, it's timeless. Job is the story of the human condition. It's the challenge of actually trusting God and his loving leadership whenever we face the crisis that at times is real life. And Martha comes out strong. Don't throw scripture verses at my problems. Right? Don't just text me all these little cute verses because you think that, like, that's what I want to hear and all this stuff. And I'm not, I'm not minimizing, right, the importance of the word. That's not what I'm doing. Right? But she knows the word. But she doesn't know the one who took upon himself flesh. 
She doesn't actually know the Lord. She knows the text and not a real person. And out of her religiosity and her hollow traditional sense of understanding the letter, she has accusations against who God is. And Martha comes out because the pain of her circumstance is producing accusation against God rather than it creating an altar of worship. She can't enthrone him in the midst of her circumstance because her frustration has gotten the best of her. Because she doesn't really know him. She says, don't, don't, don't try to give me that. I know God's going to raise everybody at the end of the age. And he says, no, okay, I see where we are. But that's what I wanted. I wanted to know where we really were. Because the right circumstance in life hasn't hit hard enough. You've always been able to somehow make do and keep it together and roll your sleeves up and muscle it out and, and find fleshly ways to leverage at least an image that supposed to everyone else that you didn't ever have to deal with the tension, right? You were more mature than the tension, but that's okay because I have more time than you think you have maturity. And so I'm eventually going to find a scenario that is going to allow you to realize where we really are because I already know where we really are. Right? Peter says, even if everyone else leaves you, I'm your guy. And Jesus is like, that's who you really think you are? Bro, are you for real? Like, you think you're that guy? That's not you at all. But I know that, but you don't know that. And it says that Mary now catches word. The one who's broken the box at his feet and given him the costly oil that he longs for. These are days where we have to make sure we have oil and that our lamps are burning. And Mary comes, but she comes in a very different way than Martha comes. And it says that she comes and she seems to have the same statement, but seeming the same statement is coming from a different fundamental posture as to how she relates to Jesus. For she's not coming and standing and seeming to erupt with her aggravation of who she wanted him to be. She comes and she falls at his feet. And she says to him, I know that if you were here, it wouldn't have happened this way. And Jesus asks, as he sees them, the scripture is intentional at what it's communicating. He sees that Mary's posture of brokenness, she's falling at his feet. It's the last time she was at his feet, breaking open the box. The next time you see her, she's at his feet when he's reclining in their home. Mary has a posture that governs her life. And she's at his feet and from his feet, she says, if you were here, 
And Jesus, looking upon her brokenness and looking at the faces of those that had gathered around, because it says that Jerusalem was two miles away and many of the Jews had come to try to console them and to be with them, and that they too were there weeping, and Jesus looks around. And this is where we have this epic two-word verse in John chapter 11, two words that radically changed the game for you and for me. John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. He's the God that actually made the choice to become one of the creatures. He's the God that chose to enter into the human story, but as a human himself. He's the word that took upon himself flesh. The one who is eternal, that entered into a mortal, finite, fleshly, weak vehicle. He is the God that is all-powerful, and he knows what he's going to do, but he stands in the midst of a broken situation, and he identifies. We want to live in an identify culture. He identifies with their brokenness. And he weeps with them. He knows what he's going to do. Man, hear this. He's not just trying to provide solutions. He's not always just interested in the quick fix and the easy goings of life. He's not always trying to rescue us from the tension or the building conversation on the inside and our perceptions and accusations. He's standing in the midst of them, but not just among them. He is weeping alongside of them. He identifies with your pain because he identifies very deeply with our humanity. He is the high priest that is able to be compassionate because he himself was tested in every way and yet was without sin. He is the one that can offer intercession on their behalf because he himself has become one of them. And because he has become one of them, he knows in himself all of the challenges of our humanity, all of the brokenness, all of the fears, all of the doubts, all of the inner wrestlings, all of the frailty of the human life, even up and against all of the images that we create that at times at least want to make others believe that that's not who we really are or what we're actually going through. He himself identifies. He's the one that was pressed in the garden to the point of having to experience the greatest depths of the human condition. And because he overcame in what was the deepest, darkest, most broken moment of the human life, he himself is able able to identify with them and offer sacrifice on behalf of them. He stands with them and he weeps with them. Do you know him this way? Do you know the God that weeps with you? Who knows your pain? Who understands at times how much you doubt and is still committed to you? Do you know this God that even and up against your greatest fears knows how difficult it is for you to keep believing him and he's long-suffering 
because he recognizes that it's not anything about your own strength that is sustaining you. We've left everything to follow you. Cool, that's great. That's one perspective. But never forget that it was me that first chose you. Peter, this isn't about your own perception of your self-righteousness. Right? Your supposed belief that you're self-righteous enough, you're strong enough, you're smart enough, you've got enough friends, you'll always have enough money, your own quick-fix power is always going to be able to bring a resolution, you'll never end up in a place where you're not able to finagle some type of outcome. No, 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 it's not about these things. I stand with you. I love you. I identify with you. I know that you're weak and broken. I know that you're frail and at times you're going to doubt. I know that there's going to be moments that you're overwhelmed and fear is going to try to get the best of you. I know that at times the circumstantial evidence that's against you is going to create a wall of opposition in front of you where you're going to be completely undone and all of what you have within you is only going to be able to ache deep from the inside to say, God, I know that this looks impossible, but I'm going to trust you and I don't even know what that means or looks like right now and I don't even have fancy words to try to pray myself through but I sit with an ache and a longing on the inside and tears running down my face because I know at least up until this point who you are and who you've revealed yourself to me and Jesus weeps He weeps even though he knows he has power to raise the dead. He weeps even though he knows he has power to open the eyes of the blind. He weeps even though he knows that he can open the ears of the deaf. He weeps even though he knows he can cleanse the leper and multiply food. Let me tell you, he's more than a bill payer and a breakthrough provider. He's a person, and he wants to be known. And we've got to know him more than just the God who pays bills and rescues in moments of crisis. This isn't something of like in case of emergency, break glass, got to go looking for Jesus. Mary has a posture that governs her life. And from a posture of worship, she may not understand him, but she's also not going to limit him. From a posture of worship, she might not necessarily always be doing what she thinks she wants him to do, but she's also no longer trying to control him. She can worship him without trying to manipulatively have her devotion be a tool to try to control him. She can worship him and let him be himself. She can worship him and not try to limit him. She can worship him gazing deeply upon him and understanding that who he is to her has become enough for her. And Jesus stands with them and he weeps. And he looks and he says, this isn't actually for me. He told them, I'm glad for your sake that this has happened this way so that I can go and raise him and that you will believe. Could there possibly be something about our impossible seeming situations where God is allowing things to form the way that they form so that he can 
form a greater understanding of how we know him in our hearts? Could it be that at times it's not actually about the situation at all as much as it is about his loving intentions for us to know him in a way that we haven't known him? And if we would stop pretending that we already know everything there is to know about him, then maybe we could allow the agenda of our circumstance to actually accomplish its goal in our hearts. Rather than supposing that we know everything there is to know about the letter, at times we know things about the letter, but we yet resist the revelation of the man. Two sisters, same circumstance. Right? It's just wild how one situation can create a variety of effects in all of our hearts. One situation, a multitude of responses, but that's because we're all in different places. We're all in different places. And Jesus weeps, but yet he still raises him from the dead. Jesus weeps. You see, I'm, I'm learning more and more about the God who weeps with me. About the God when tears are flowing from my face because I want everything to be easier. Right? Does anybody want anything to be easier? You don't actually have to raise your hand. I wouldn't imagine that. Right? We cry out for softer circumstances. He's crying out for our hearts to be softened. And I'm just being challenged in a variety of ways right now to believe that he is who he says he is. And it is absolutely crushing me in every possible way. And I don't like it at all. And I don't like it because I can't pretend that it's not happening. I am getting crushed right now. And it seems like it's coming from a variety of angles in real life. I'm getting crushed by the yes that he's asking me to give him. I'm getting crushed because that yes is creating a process. And that process is bringing the hammer and the chisel to my life. The hammer being the word of the Lord is my word not like a hammer that breaks up the follow ground. Is it not like a fire? Right? And the chisel is real life circumstance. So the hammer is the word that we say yes to. The chisel is real life circumstance. The process that we actually have to walk through because the confession is not enough. The confession is not what gives us substance. It's the faithfulness to the process that gives us substance. We think if we have the right confession, that it automatically becomes synonymous with the real substance. And that's not the way that it works. You can have the right confession, Lord, I'll do anything for you. Get up and kill your son. Okay, wow, hold on, things escalated kind of quick. Get your butt up tomorrow and start walking. Because we're really going to have to walk this out. And I'm really having to walk some things out right now in real life that is crushing me in every possible way. Because it would be a lot safer to do it in other ways, right? And it's safer because the way that I create at times doesn't lead me to impossibility. It leads me to the things that are possible that I can manage well by my own wisdom and by all of the fleshly mechanics 
that I have at my disposal. That's safe. That's the self-made life, to build things the way that I can manage, to build things in the way that alleviates all of the tension, to build things in such a way where I'm never going to have to be exposed because every way that I build it is never going to be beyond what I know I'm able to produce in order to sustain it. That's the easy way. But God very rarely walks that way, even though I'd like him to. And I'm getting crushed because he's asked me for a handful of yeses. That in real time are exposing, I've got nothing if God doesn't come through. I've got nothing. If he doesn't do what he said he would. If he doesn't fulfill his word on his own timeline. And yes, I'm I'm walking up against things that are breaking me down. And the reason that they're breaking me down is because that's what they're meant to do. Because the Lord resists the proud. And so in all of my prideful, self-seeming arrogance, as if I'm the one that's actually making things happen, God brings me up against things that reveal to me that it actually has nothing to do with me and that it's his power, it's his might, it's his grace, it's his provision, it's all of his own workings and dealings and his faithfulness to me that is actually seeing me through in time And time again, and this is one of those times, and it hurts, and it's scary. Um, It's scary because I don't have a way to prop myself up to be impressive. I have to trust him. And at times, uh, I, I took my kids jet skiing over the summer. We went on vacation, and my two older, well, actually, none of them have ever been jet skiing. And the three of us got on one jet ski, right? And so I'm at the front. And my son is in the middle because he was scared to death, and he didn't want to be on the back. And the jet skis went like 70, 75. Let me tell you, on the water, that might as well be 500 miles an hour. And my son is in the middle because he's scared to death. And my oldest, she's on the back, and she chose the back because she was scared to death too, but she saw how scared my son was. And she came to the determination that she wasn't as scared as he was. So as she was measuring out their fear... And their fear level, she thought, well, I'll put him in the middle because though I'm scared, he's way more scared than I am. And so he needs that position, right? He needs the position to be holding on to dad. And it was just wild because I'm the one with the controls and I know that I'm not going to do something that is going to bring them to the point where I ruin them along the way, right? I don't have it out for them. My intentions for them are good, right? Even when I ramp it up a little bit and I hit the waves and we seem to go through the air and everything is scary to them, I know that my intentions to them are amazing. Well, my son doesn't know that. And there came a moment where... I thought I would do something that was super cool, right? We, we had passed by these dolphins, and we had passed by these stingrays, and, and one of these stingrays were actually bigger than both of my kids put together. And I thought that I would turn around to go see the stingrays. And the jet ski turned upside down. <laughs> oh, yeah. And all three of us ended up in the water with our floats on, Right? Not like little kid floats. We wore like these vests. And we ended up in the water. Dolphins swimming around. Massive stingrays. My son almost died. He 
screamed and cried so loud that no sound came out. Maybe you don't remember that happening to you, but for those of us with kids, right, you understand there comes a moment where they get so overwhelmed or so worked up that it produces this expression that is, it's so emotional that it has no sound. <laughs> and the only thing that actually calmed him down is I actually swam over to him. I remember my daughter was in the water and she was freaking out too, but she started laughing at him because of how freaked out he was, which did not make how bad he was freaking out better. And all he kept thinking was, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And I swam over to him and I grabbed his face and I got right up to him and I said, bro, listen to me. And it seemed to calm things down for a moment. And I realized you've got one chance to say something that is either <laughs> going to help what's happening or we are like red alert from here. All hell is going to break loose. And I grabbed his face and I said, you know that dad would never do anything to hurt you, right? And he stopped for a minute. He said, <laughs> yeah. And I said, do you think I'm trying to hurt you? He said, no. I said, then let's get back on the jet ski. And he said, okay. He knew in theory that God would never do anything to hurt him, that dad would never do anything to hurt him, right? Martha knew in theory what the letter said, but Mary knew in the practicals of life. And it's in the practicals of life where I believe that God wants to grab your face and pull you close and say, this is who I am. This is who I am. Will you enthrone me in this place? Right, that beautiful Psalm 22, 3, he's enthroned upon the praises of his people. In this season, have you been giving him oil or have you been giving him complaining? Have you been giving him oil or have you been erupting with accusation? Have you been giving him oil? Have you been breaking the box of your devotion and pouring out upon him the worship that he desires? Or have you been so moved by what you've been going through that it's caused you to erupt with accusation, with complaining, with your perspective of who you wanted him to be. What have you been giving him in this season? What has the pressure of the circumstances that you've been going through? Come on, we have to deepen in the knowledge of God. And if we're not yet deep enough in our knowledge of God that we can give him oil in season, then we have to go deeper. 
If we're not yet deep enough to where rather than the erupting of complaining and accusation, we can have a posture of worship where our lives are governed by our desire to give him oil in every circumstance, then we're not yet to the place that is deep enough in order to live consistently the way that he longs for us to. Because if there's anything about our devotion that is inconsistent, then our knowledge of God has not yet deepened enough. Because again, it's not that we won't be exposed to these other influences or prone to engage in these other conversations. It's at the end of the wrestling match. Is there a knowledge of God within us that says, not my will, but your will be done? I believe that this morning, the Lord is looking for worship in the place where you're standing. And that may be great here, and in a moment I'm going to invite us to do that. But doing it here is one thing. But doing it in the car or on the train on your way to work when you feel like your business is about to go under is a different thing. Doing it at home while you're washing dishes and you know your marriage is on the rocks is another thing. Doing it when you're interacting with your children over this Thanksgiving holiday and you at least from the outward appearance feel like their hearts are far from God and tears are streaming down your face because of your intercession for them. Believing that he is the one that is in the midst of us who weeps with us who desires to raise the dead, who desires to work miracles and provide the parting of the waters in times when it's difficult for us to see our way forward is another thing. So yes, though I do believe that there is a corporate moment of worship that the Lord is going to invite us into, I also believe that there's an individual private moment of devotion where you and Jesus in the trenches of real life, he is looking for you to break open the box of your devotion and worship with your oil. And only you can give it to him. And I believe that the Lord wants to reveal himself to you in the midst of the tension. I believe that he wants to reveal himself to you in the face of impossibility. I believe that he wants to reveal himself to you up and against what looks like adversity and uncertainty. Where we can enthrone him in this place rather than having the enthronement of our fears and doubts and all of our lack of the revelation of an intimate knowledge of God. But will you worship him in that place? Stand up with me for just the next couple of moments. Will you worship him in a broken place? Will you worship him in a place where you feel afraid? Will you worship him in the place where you realize you don't have all the answers and it's okay to not have to pretend like you do? Will you worship him in the place where the wall of water is up against you and you honestly have no idea how God is going to do it and all you know is that he gave you a word 
and that word has set into motion your obedience and all of the process that you're experiencing. And you know that he's faithful to the end and he's long-suffering and he's good. But at times the waters are real and Lazarus is really dead. And at times the tension is building. And all I've got is a simple belief. I know you're going to see me through. I know you're going to see me through. I just don't know how yet. I know you're going to come through for me. You just haven't revealed to me the way yet. I know that you've led me into a scary place, but I know that you're with me and I don't have to bow. I don't have to enthrone fear. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know that you're with me. Will you worship him when you're getting crushed on every side by life? And the pain of the process that God has asked you to walk through is more than you know how to bear up under and sustain by all of the fleshly mechanics. Will you give him oil in a frustrating place? Will you fall at his feet when things you hoped for die? Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website, burningones.org, or download our app.